Today, we're going to talk about the money side of indie game dev. Welcome to the 75th episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. I am your host, Zachavelli. You can find me on Twitter at underscore Zachavelli underscore or tune in for Game Dev streams at twitch.tv slash Zachavelli underscore. We also have an open community discord and by the time you are hearing this, there actually is still time to sign up probably, or at least last second join in on our big event for the year, which is the monthly Team Jam. This is an event where you sign up and I matchmake you onto teams depending on your skill level and stuff like that. And you get put on a team, you have a month to make a game, and at the end of the month I play all the games and offer feedback, and yeah, it's a fun time. It's our community's big event, and by the time you are hearing this, You know, the teams might be announced, but if you go on the Discord, I'll leave a link to the Discord in the notes, in the show notes, by the way. But if you go on to the Discord and you are very polite and beg someone to let you onto their team, I'm sure that they would be happy to let you on. So yeah, go check that out on our community Discord. There is a link in the show notes. With the intro out of the way, I want to move on over to the Game Dev Challenge. The Game Dev Challenge is the part of the show where I provide a prompt to the listeners that is intended to be like a 30 minutes exercise that helps you cement the ideas from the show. Listeners then put their ideas or their submissions rather on the community discord and we all vote on our favorite posts and then I read the winner on the uh, following episode. Last episode was about turning a bad game around, and we talked about improvement plans for games with good bones. And remember, I talked about games that have good bones, but they're just missing that last bit of polish or maybe a a different decision, a game design decision or something that could help turn them around. So yeah, we had a couple of really solid posts, but there can be only one winner, and the winner of... The episode 74 Game Dev Challenge is Calcoa. Calcoa's post is as follows. I am launching a game on Steam, Scrap Warden, which is a hybrid Asteroids meets Survivor. Side note, I have played Scrap Warden. I think think Calcoa made this for a monthly, a GDFG month game jam. Yeah, I've played Scrap Warden. Okay, anyways, moving on. Upgrades are required to help survive and destroy things better. One of these is a shield that protects the player. I developed a blind spot knowing how the shield works. I had trust people to play tested it for me. Like Zachavelli pointed out though, others, other players won't know the inner workings of your game, so I needed to listen to the player feedback and determine the root cause. The symptom was it felt bad when they died. After following up, I determined the root cause. It was how the shield protected the player by reflecting things that ran into it, but it did not prevent things that came through it, whether it was a laser or a boss dashing through the player. 
This resulted in cases where the shield could still be active, but the player dies. Okay, I see what Kalkoa is saying here. Kalkoa is saying that they have a shield in this game, but the shield is only working in some cases. Uh, and in this case, it sounds like it's not working when the boss dashes through you or a laser goes through you, which a player, a new player to the game would probably expect that to work. So yeah, I can see, I can see where the blind spot was. Anyways, to go on to Kalkoa's post, I realized it was a blind spot and implemented an improvement plan to fix the underlying issue. The plan involved funneling damage through a function where I could determine if the shield is active, acquired, and apply the damage to it first. So the shield needs to fail to take damage. <laughs> Kalkoa ends the post by saying, The emotions, it feels bad, is not something I wanted to evoke in this case. Anyways, I felt like submitting. Thanks for listening to my ramble. I think this was a really good post at explaining kind of how blind spots happen. Uh, in this case, it sounds like Kalkoa subconsciously knew that things that pass through you um, pass through the shield as well. But coming from a new player perspective, that doesn't necessarily make sense. And so there was a disconnect. To a new player, it felt like the shields weren't working at all. And this is a very mature move from Kalkoa to recognize that uh, there was a flaw, find the blind spot, and fix it. I think that is a sign of doing quality game dev because at some point, <laughs> at some point in all of our game dev careers, we're going to have a blind spot. It's just a classic issue that happens. Um, it happened with my first game on Steam, Bounce Shot. I got too good at my own game and I forgot what the beginner player experience was like. I knew that the puzzles had multiple solutions, but if people are struggling to find the first solution, they'll never find the second or third or fourth. So yeah, blind spots happen to everyone, and um, good on Calcoa for recognizing one for their game and fixing it. So yeah, congrats to Calcoa for winning the episode 74 Game Dev Challenge. For episode 75, the challenge will be to use a market research tool to find either a really good potential high revenue indie game genre or a very bad potential revenue indie game genre. Later in the episode, we're gonna talk about how to use market research tools in order to maybe estimate the revenue of certain genres of indie games. What kind of indie game should you make? What kind of indie game do people wanna play? We're gonna talk about these kinds of questions a little bit later. But yeah, I'm going to teach you some market research tools as well. And I want you to use them to find uh, really good examples or really bad examples. It's kind of up to you. So if after today's episode you're really inspired to do a bunch of research, feel free to report to us your findings. For the Game Dev Challenge, you can do that in the community discord under the Game Dev Challenge channel. With the Game Dev Challenge out of the way, let's move on over to the body of the episode. Today's episode, I just wanted you to get a picture of what the money side of indie game dev is like, and maybe offer some advice on how to make at least informed financial decisions. What I can't offer you today is some kind of get-rich-quick plan, and I'm even going to try and steer away from the this-is-how-you-make-money tips because to tell you the truth, I have struggled so far making this financially viable other than using the experience to get a job at a commercial game studio. 
So yeah, I guess you could say today's more of just a look behind the scenes. And what I'm hoping to do is to provide you with information on where to find financial information, things like where I get mine from, how to use it to make decisions, and hopefully you leave today's episode with at least a little bit more knowledge than you came in with, and you feel comfortable making some financial decisions for your own indie game dev journey. So let's start with the big question right off the bat. How much money do indie games make? The answer, or my answer, I think is probably going to disappoint you, but I'm pretty sure you already know it, and the answer is it depends, but most do not make that much. I would say the majority of indie games and indie game devs do not make enough for it to be financially stable in the long term. And I'm going to talk about how I got these figures later, but if you want the rough actual figures, these are my quick estimations after looking at the data. I would say 50% of indie games make less than $1,000 and 75% of indie games make less than 10k in revenue. I like to generally figure that after Steam's cut and taxes and expenses, I like to make the conservative estimate that I keep half of the revenue. So that means 50% of indie games on Steam have a net income of around $500 and 75% of them have a net income of less than 5,000. So yeah, the odds are not looking good. And I know what some of you might be thinking right now. You say, well, 75% make less than 5,000. Yeah, that's one in four, uh, but that means one in four games go for more than 5,000. So I'll just make four games a year and we'll be good. Well, firstly, I, and I don't think I have to explain this to people familiar with video games, but just in case you never played XCOM or tried to use Focus Punch in Pokemon, that 25% is not a guarantee. And I would even say that it's a lot lower for people with less experience. In other words, if this is your first indie game, the odds of it making less than 5k is probably 90%. But even if you get past that 5k threshold, it's an exponential scale. At the 15th percentile, meaning one or two games out of 10, uh, they make about 40K in revenue. So we're already getting to the point where you would have to make 10 games a year. And going with our you keep half the income method, uh, that puts you just above the minimum wage, at least here in the United States. Now remember, it's an exponential scale. So Going from the 15th percentile to the 10th, we see about 100K in revenue or an income of 50K. At the 5th percentile, we get into 400K revenue or about $200,000. So it's not all doom and gloom, but before you hear that big number, remember that's the 5th percentile, 5 out of 100 games. And that's assuming that all games are equally likely which is a very flawed assumption because the quality of the game really skews those odds. Like I said, your first game will almost certainly not be a 5 out of 100 game. Well, it, it might be a 5 out of 100 game, but not <laughs> 5 out of 100. You know what I'm saying. It won't be the best 5 out of 100 games. It'll be maybe the most buggy <laughs> 5 out of 100 games, but yeah, the point is, I don't have exact numbers on this as I can't filter my tool by games, uh, like first try games. 
but I'm going to guess 80% of indie devs first commercial game makes less than $500. Now keep in mind, these are really rough estimations and I'm not even telling you these numbers with the intent to discourage you or anything. I'm just trying to get you to understand that there are lots of reasons to do indie game dev commercially, but getting rich on your first try quickly uh, is not one of them. And I'm actually really surprised at how often newcomers come into it thinking that their game idea is going to sell millions of copies and they should just quit their job and pursue it. I'm all for pursuing your dreams. You guys know that I have championed that here on the show. But I think we need to be realistic about the financial security of it, especially if you have people depending on you for your income. So my best advice is if you're toying with the idea of making games for money, uh, step one, make sure you can make a game that is commercial quality. By this I mean you probably should have a few completed projects under your belt. Uh, you can practice that by making free games and participating in game jams. And then step two is do it as a side gig. Don't quit your day job to count on this income. I mean, think about it. If $500 in sales is your only income, uh, that's going to be really rough. That is a bad situation. But if it's a side thing, like you were going to make the game anyways just because you like doing it in your free time, and you get an extra $500 to go along with doing your hobby, that's a pretty sweet deal. I would only consider going full-time, and this is coming from someone who has already failed at this once, uh, if you have a game you're pretty sure is going to be in that 10th percentile or higher. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, how am I going to know that? One metric I know of comes from the most knowledgeable person I know about this stuff, Chris Zukowski. You can find his website, howtomarketagame.com, where he has an excellent blog about all sorts of marketing and business stuff for indies. But he has an awesome tab on his website that's called uh, Benchmarks. And I think it's pretty helpful for estimating this kind of stuff. He breaks it into four tiers. Diamond, gold, silver, and bronze. And these categories are based on lifetime earnings. So for instance, the games in the gold bracket have a lifetime expected earnings of 250000 to a million, where games in the bronze are 0 to 10000 and again, remember, you kind of have that exponential scale effect. But anyways, one of the ways that is listed on the benchmarks for estimating your game's category is wish lists within the first two weeks of launching your Steam page. 100 wish lists is bronze, 500 silver, 1200 is gold, and 7000 is diamond. Now, of course, these aren't guarantees, but I think they're good estimate metrics that really help you ballpark how much your game could earn. Speaking of estimative metrics, let's move on over to talking about analytics tools and methods. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, where is Zach getting all these numbers from? Well, there's a few methods, uh, but I've really come down to two, and really they're the same one. One's just a little bit more advanced than the other. But it's important to note that Steam doesn't make sales figures public. So these are estimative methods, and the only public number we can get off of Steam pages, really, is um, reviews, or the number of reviews. So all of these methods are somewhat based on counting the number of reviews and then doing something with that number. And the accuracy really varies based on what you do with that, but it's pretty good for ballparking. 
You just have to use your own judgment in some cases. So the first method is very crude, but it's good for a quick estimate, and that is taking the number of reviews, which you can find on the store page, and multiplying it by a number that estimates the number of copies sold, sort of like a constant. Now the trick is that constant is a little bit different depending on the genre, budget, and year the game released, but I stick with the number 31. I multiply the reviews by 31, and that seems to give a fairly good estimation of copies sold. Now, like I said, you got to use your best judgment about the accuracy of this. For instance, this number is a little high for my game Bounce Shot, uh, but that's because you guys really helped me out by leaving reviews when you bought it. My ratio is just a little bit different than other kinds of games. So you kind of got to think about things like this uh, for the true ratio. For instance, with bigger AAA games, maybe that number is a little bit higher. I've even seen like people use 50 or 70. So yeah, just consider the size of the game, the publisher, the genre, politics, all sorts of stuff. Now, there's another method or tool that I use to estimate copies sold and, and other sales figures. And it is also based on review data, but it uses some other factors like polling public Steam profiles and comparing with public sales data from companies that release their own sales data. This allows the estimates to be a little bit more refined and accurate. And for this, I use a tool called Gammalytic. I'll put a link in the episode description, but it's basically a website and it's super useful for estimating Steam sales. You can break things down by genre, tags, price. To me, what Asprite is to pixel art, Gammalytic is to market research for indie devs. It is my go-to tool for market research, and I'm going to use it for the next part of this episode. Now, this whole episode isn't meant to be a market research episode, but I do want to show you how useful it can be. And because I know the audience and I know what you're thinking right now, you're saying to yourself, okay, we talked a little bit about how much money games make, but what affects that? What good is knowing the numbers if I don't know what causes them to go up or down? Well, I want to quickly mention what I think the three most important general factors are for determining how much money a game will make, or at least influencing your own numbers to hopefully go up. Those three things to me are quality, marketing, and demand. They're very general things, so don't let that fool you and you just say, it's oh, it's easy, all I gotta do is do three things. <laughs> Each of those three things are made up of like a thousand things, but... Yeah, I picked some general overview categories just so you can see what I think makes the numbers go up. And it actually works as a hierarchy, and I'll explain that. The quality is exactly what it sounds like. And I think it kind of comes in two parts. Part one is the first impression. Does your game look like it's quality? This comes from your Steam page, your capsule art, screenshots in the trailer. The truth is someone's going to look at this and in like the first 15 seconds decide if they want to play it. So it's got to look like it's a quality game. And then part two of the quality is it actually has to be a quality game. It can't be boring. It's got to work. It's got to have something interesting about it. And you would measure this part of the quality with the reviews. Uh, to put this all in short, good reviews equals more sales. I know that's groundbreaking <laughs> information I'm bringing you, but 
I don't know. I think that gets maybe looked over sometimes. Now, here's where the hierarchy part comes in. The truth is, all of that quality uh, will not matter if you don't do the next thing in the hierarchy, which is marketing. Just having a good game is not enough. Good marketing determines a huge majority of your sales. Therefore, marketing is the next thing in the hierarchy. We could do an entire episode about marketing and I actually have done an entire episode about marketing. Uh, there's still so much more to talk about. We could probably do in a part two and a part three. Uh, but what is the most important, biggest decision you make when it comes to marketing? It's what genre your game is. And funnily enough, that ties in perfectly to the next part of the hierarchy we were talking about, which is demand. You can make the best backported Virtual Boy emulator text-based game in the world and tell everyone about this really wacky and cool project that you made. But if you think about it, even if you reach every person on the planet who this is their jam, this is exactly what they want, how many people is that? I can't imagine the backported Virtual Boy emulator text-based community is very big. It's got to be like... 17 people. Now compare that to the amount of people on the planet that want to play a survival craft game for PC. Even if you only reach half that audience, that is hundreds of times bigger. Now that doesn't mean the Virtual Boy project is any lesser or you shouldn't do it. I'm not trying to say that your really unique thing uh, shouldn't be done because it can't make money. What I'm saying is if the reason you are making a game is for money, or at least that's one of the reasons, the cold truth is that you're better off considering the demand for the game and maybe picking something that is popular. And to prove that, we're going to go to Gamalytic, that tool I was mentioning earlier. So let's make an assumption so that we can compare genres accurately. One thing you can do with Gamalytic is compare genres by revenue percentile. So we're going to compare what a top 25% game makes in revenue from different genres. So in other words, if 100 games in this genre came out, yours would have to be rated in the top 25 of them. This is our quality factor, right? We're doing the quality check with that. Hey everyone, editing Zachavilli here. I just realized that... Uh, I guess being top percentile doesn't necessarily mean top in quality, just top in sales. And uh, those two th things, well correlated, it's not a direct assumption. So yeah, just keep that in mind. I'll probably keep making that assumption here going forward in the episode. Uh, and I think it's a, there's a good correlation there, but I know someone was going to, I realized while editing, someone was going <laughs> to jump on the forums and or the discord rather and start uh roasting me for that so yeah just before you press that send button on discord <laughs> just i realize uh yeah it's not a one-to-one -one correlation anyways back to the show so think about it the very first thing you got to do is make a top 25 percent game of this genre. A game jam is a good way of determining where your skill level is at, by the way. If you were in a game jam with a hundred other people and the rules were fair and you were all had access to the same tools and everything, everyone had the same amount of time and budget, 
Do you think you would finish in the top 25? Now consider that on Steam, the other 99 people uh, do not have to play by the same rules as you. They can have a, a much longer time to work on the game. They can have a much bigger budget. So, yeah, don't just assume that you are going to be a top 25% game. It's actually that takes a lot of skill, and it's not a fair playing field. But, anyways, let's compare some numbers between the genres at that 25 percentile mark. So, let's start with a classic. Let's say you're making a 2D pixel art platformer. I can filter the genres and tags and see that Gamealytic says that if you are making a top 25% 2D pixel art platformer, their revenue estimation is $1,200. So for making a game that's better than most in its genre, you get $1,200. Now, let's compare that to a strategy 4X game. A top 25% 4X game, according to Gamealytic, makes $400,000. So I hope you can see the genre you pick matters a lot. Now I wish it was this easy. You just search on Gamelytic and find the highest revenue ones and pick that one and do it. But of course it's not. There's nothing easy in <laughs> game dev. That doesn't invalidate this data. It just means you got to be smart about how you use it. Uh, the smart observation here in this case would be the time and budget to make a top 25% 4X is a lot higher than a top 25% platformer. It requires a totally different skill set and a different kind of game design. So the trick with using this tool is finding one of those genres where the numbers are good, but also thinking to yourself, am I capable of making a high caliber game in this genre? And because we are all good at different things, uh, different styles, and have different interests, this is going to be different for a lot of us. So yeah, now that we know a little bit more about how much indie games make and different ways to estimate them and, and find uh, good prospects, let's consider maybe some other sources of income for game developers. One way to make money as an indie game developer is to work on other people's games as a contractor. I actually don't know much about this as I've never done it as a contractor. Of course right now my day job is to make someone else's game but that's more of a employee situation. I suppose the nice thing about contracting is the flexibility but I feel like the work can be real hit or miss and you have to line up your own work and do other admin stuff with it. It seems like to me this works a lot better for specialized professions rather than generalists like me. Like, I think the work is probably a little bit easier to line up if you're a coder or a professional artist. So yeah, I just wanted to mention contracting right off the bat because I know it really works well for some people. And it's definitely something to consider. Uh, but you might want to weigh it against just getting a job at a game development company. I suppose I would pick a contracting job over general employment if I wanted a little bit more flexibility, especially when it comes to my own projects. Because at most companies, there's some sort of non-compete clause or something that prevents you from making your own indie games while you work on their game. But with contracting, I feel like it's a little bit more relaxed because you can have multiple contracts with different clients at once. And who's to stop you from taking yourself, your own ideas, as a client? 
Okay, where else can we get some additional income? Well, I don't know if this technically counts as additional, but you could get some upfront income that will eventually you'll have to pay back with the sales of your game uh, from a publisher. I think publishers are good for long-term projects. Like if you figure it's going to take you working on your game for full time for three years, most people can't save up enough money to pay for a three-year development period. So a publisher can help you by giving you the money up front. But in return, they get a cut of your game sales or maybe something worse depending on the agreement. Publishers can come with some baggage, uh, so I definitely recommend you learn more about it if you decide to go that route. In fact, we should probably do a whole episode on publishers, or better yet, I should get a bonus guest who's probably way more knowledgeable than me to do one. But yeah, getting a publisher is something definitely to look into if you're planning on a long-term project. Okay, the next additional source of income can come from donors. This would be from things like Patreon. The best way I've seen this done is from a small group of indie devs called the Sock Pop Collective. I believe they refer to themselves as an indie game boy band. <laughs> but anyways, they have a Patreon where you donate for access to things like free games, behind the scenes content, and just your general support. And that acts as supplemental income for them while they work on their games. This is a super cool idea, and I think it's a smart way to earn a little extra income to bridge the gaps between releases and maybe mitigate the risk of a bad game a little bit. The indie game boy band thing is just like a cool way of looking at it. It makes me want to start an indie game band. I think my indie game band would be more like a K-pop style where it's like 20 people deep. And uh, yeah, that's not a bad idea. I'll add that to the list of risky business decisions. <laughs> but I think that would be super fun. Anyways, uh, last but not least, we have maybe the most common way I see supplemental income for indie game devs, and that is selling game dev courses. Now, the online course market has really exploded, and I think this could be a solid source of income. Maybe even you're thinking, Zach, you're in the game dev education business. Why don't you make any courses? Well, personally, I'm actually kind of openly critical about courses. I don't know if I've ever said that on this podcast before, but if you've tuned into my streams, that's twitch.tv slash underscore, by the way, uh, if you've tuned into my streams, you probably have heard me <laughs> go on a rant or two about this. This episode's going a little long, so I'll explain my position quickly. I don't think all courses are bad. But there are a lot that I think exploit people by selling them on their dream. I don't see some of them as any different than courses that teach you how to make a million dollars from home for 15 minutes of work. Those courses work on people because they're so fed up with their job or they just need money in general. And they have this dream of being a millionaire. That way they can, you know, just get rid of all these burdens in their life. And to them, they say, well, if I just take this course and learn how to do this, then I can get rid of all that and I can achieve my dream of being a millionaire. And so they go out and they way overpay a course because they're in this like vulnerable position and the methods that are taught actually have like a less than 1% chance of actually working. Just like the people who dream of being millionaires, 
people hold a similar intense dream for making a video game. And they go out and buy $500 worth of courses because buying the course makes it feel like they are getting closer. But I know from being on the educator side and and the people selling the courses, uh, I wager they know this too, that 80% of people who get into game dev never even finish one game, let alone build their dream game. And that's just because they find out they don't like it or it's too much work or they don't have the skill set, or they don't have the time to put into it, or whatever. But the point is, they have this really intense dream, they get all this stuff marketed to them, like, you can achieve your dream tomorrow, it's easy. Just buy this $500 course. And they are probably just churning through people who, uh, yeah, never even complete their first game, or complete like a really tiny small game, but never get anywhere close to their dream. And actually, I hope a bit of that problem is solved by this podcast. I'm trying to teach you all the fundamentals for free because that's that's how I learned. I learned everything I know for free. And I hope people can at least get to the point where they can try out game dev before they spend all that money so they can see if they even like it, if they're, if it's even a possibility for them. That way you can find yourself at a point where you can say, okay, I really like this and I want to invest in my education so I can do this at a higher level or more competent level. So it's time for me to buy a course. Or you can say to yourself, this was fun, but it's going to be a side hobby for me. It's probably not worth buying a course. But the way these courses are sold, they they don't wait for that moment. They just say, yeah, your dream is totally possible. Buy this course and it'll be done by uh, <laughs> next week. Maybe that's maybe that's a bit of an over-exaggeration, but I know you know what I'm saying. So yeah, if I were just offering general advice to everyone out there, before you go buy a super expensive course, find out if you even like doing game dev. Learn the basics for free. Then when you know that you like it, then you can say, okay, I want to go learn deeply about this specific thing. Maybe it's a C-sharp programming and Unity course, or uh, I want to learn this specific art style course. Then you go buy that course for specifically that, and that's where the good ones are. But I don't know. I don't think I personally would recommend paying to learn the fundamentals of your first game. One that maybe maybe where I could see it is if you were learning to code and you wanted to pay to learn to code because I think that's like a transferable skill. That's just a very valuable skill. And I think there's probably good courses for that that aren't even necessarily game dev related. But again, I think you can learn all of those fundamentals for totally free through things like this podcast, YouTube channels, forums, communities. I went from knowing absolutely nothing about game dev to getting a job in the industry for free. All of my education was free. And I learned exactly in that way. I learned off podcasts, YouTubes, forums, communities. And I guess I should say uh, basically free. I say basically because I did invest thousands of hours of practice and learning. So maybe there's value in using a course to speed that up to hundreds of hours. But if you're serious about doing game dev, you're going to be putting in a lot of time either way. So anyways, that is just my personal spiel. I feel like we're way off topic. (laughs) The point is there's reasons why a lot of game devs do courses and they're lucrative. It's a good source of income. 
And I'm not here to shame any of them who are doing that. In fact, the ones, the courses that are actually good, that I actually think are useful, are often done by solo indie game devs because they're teaching something small and relevant and focused. And they're not this like giant, here's how you make your dream game course. It's like very focused. So yeah, Uh, to recap, I don't think they're all bad. Look for ones by indie devs that are extremely focused. Be wary of the ones that get you on the achieve your dream trap. Personally, I think if I ever did courses, I would do something like you have to apply for it so I know it's something you'll get value out of. Like I would only sell courses to people who have launched a commercial game uh, and you got to show that in your application. I know maybe that sounds crazy, (laughs) but uh, like you have to pass something for me to even sell you something that's probably a bad business decision, which is why I don't know if I'll ever do a course. But at least then I would know, okay, this person is serious and they've proven to me uh, that they've laid the groundwork that this course is actually going to help them. But yeah, if you yourself are an indie dev and maybe you're looking for some additional income, Think about what is something that you know really, really well, something specific, like maybe you have a really cool art style that you are known for. That would be something that is worth making a course for and teaching other people how to do. And if it's popular enough, it could be a really good source of additional income. A bit of a longer episode today. I uh, went on some (laughs) rambles. Let's refocus by doing a recap of today's episode. Today's episode was a look at the money side of indie game dev. First, we talked about the big question, how much money does an indie game make? I made the estimation that 75% of games make less than $10,000 in revenue. And remember, that estimation was for all indie games. If we change the question to how much money does your first indie game make, I would estimate that much lower. Maybe, I would say most will not make more than $500. Once you get to that top 15th percentile, though, it starts to grow exponentially. The top 15th percentile game might make 40000 Well, the top 5% might make 400000 Remember that, while it's a very risky thing for a full-time income, if it's a side hobby, getting an extra couple hundred dollars or maybe even a few thousand is a pretty cool bonus. So when you're considering making games for money, I wouldn't jump straight into making it your full-time thing, but just treat it as like a side hobby that maybe you'll get paid for. Remember that you can roughly predict a little bit about how well your game is going to do by using Chris Zukowski's benchmarks on howtomarketagame.com. You can also estimate sales figures for games that have already been released. For a crude estimate, multiply the reviews by 31 to get the number of games sold. Or for more deeper, more accurate estimates, use the website Gamealytic. There's a link in the show notes. And that gives you way better estimates. You can break it down by genres and tags and minimum cost and all sorts of stuff. Remember to use good judgment for the accuracy of those. Indie games are likely going to be on the lower end of estimations. And big budget AAA games might be more towards the higher end, for example. The three things I think at a top level that affect how much a game sells are quality, 
marketing and demand, and they go in that order. First, you have to have a quality game. Listen to like every episode of the Game Dev Field Guide and practice a whole bunch of hours to figure out that part. Uh, <laughs> market your game effectively so that it reaches as many people in the target audience as you can and make sure the demand is there. In other words, pick a genre that people buy, maybe even preferably one with low competition like a 4X game. Just make sure that you can execute that genre. Don't pick a genre that you can't pass the quality requirements for. Lastly, remember that we talked about other sources of income for game devs. This can come from being a contractor, working with a publisher, taking donations from a support community, or even selling courses. And with that, I think I'm going to end today's episode. Thank you everyone for listening. I know I've been, uh, there's been a bigger gap between episodes lately. And to tell you the truth, I think that's just how it's going to be. I've just got too many things going on that I don't want to give one up, right? I could go back to, I could go back to the old schedule, but I just got too many projects that I like right now. So we'll see about going back to the old release schedule. Maybe in the future, I'll reevaluate it. But I would say for at least this summer, I would expect one, maybe two episodes a month. Don't forget that it's probably it's probably too late to sign up for the monthly game jam uh team jam but if you jumped onto the discord and very politely begged someone to let you onto their team especially if you're an artist we kind of had a lack of artists this time around someone will let you onto their team probably especially if you're an artist you can go check that out in our community discord there's a link in the show notes uh that gets you onto the discord Lastly, I just wanted to plug my Twitch, twitch.tv slash Zachavelli underscore. I've been making pretty good progress on my 2D auto battle roguelike. I usually stream on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. So yeah, with that, I think I'm going to sign off. I have been Zachavelli, now taking name suggestions for my indie game K-pop group.